Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, I'm Gene Turnbow. You're listening to The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. With us this evening is Eric C. Luthart, neurosurgeon and biochemical engineer, as well as a recognized pioneer in neuroprosthetics. He's also the author of Red Devil 4, a murder mystery in cyberspace. That's not good It's either. not cyberspace exactly, is it? It's, it's a world just coming into neuroprosthetics. Um, it's, um, it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it's a murder when everybody's brain is connected uh, with computers. Almost uh, everybody's. Almost everybody's, you're right. Therein, hilarity ensues. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Eric. Glad <laughs> to have you with us. Well, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks very much. And I'm going to edit the hell out of that intro. It's just... <laughs> You know, you'd never know that we'd been doing this for, like, this is episode 56. Well, and that's... And we're still you know, stumbling over intros. It's comedy gold, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, guys, take a deep breath, relax. Uh, just taping, yeah. okay? So we can always edit this out. Right. <laughs> How is this going to work with neuroprosthetics? <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, but the... You know, but the main character of this is trying to work out uh, artificial intelligence, and the artificial intelligence is trying to understand humanity. Well, that 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 is actually right. The uh, uh, the one of the the, the guiding themes about uh, the story is uh, the main character. His name's Hagen Mayerici. He is a neurosurgeon obsessed with his job, and he's working to create artificial intelligence. And you, there's a real dynamic throughout the story where Hagen is trying to coax a truly artificial intelligent being out of this uh, software that is a, it, emerging from a quantum computer. And the two are really learning from each other. And really throughout the story, and in some, some sense it's a modern Frankenstein story with a lot of different type of twists, but how we deal with our creations and some of, some of the ways that we can control it and some of the ways that we can't. And, so, and there's a lot of kind of moments in the story where Things are created uh, that it's some, a lot of times have unintended consequences, sometimes good and sometimes bad. Well, the, sometimes <laughs> deadly. Sometimes lethal. We start off with the, lethal. We start off with the, uh, the, the first note uh, in the book on that is uh, how everybody's brains are connected for better or worse. Everybody can read everybody else's minds. Well, they can and they can't. There's... Uh, they, they establish early on that there is a, uh, the, the United States has a constitutional amendment guaranteeing cognitive privacy, which I believe Google and Facebook would like to violate already to know what we're thinking and what we will buy. 
Right. Yeah, if we're going to have that, the 32nd Amendment, we better start now. Well, that is one thing, you know, again, one of the things I really tried to do throughout the story was uh, beyond this just being the gizmo, hey, we've got an implant in our brain, Johnny Mnemonic style, that I really wanted to kind of envision when a lot of the stuff that quite literally is happening in laboratories now becomes totally mainstream. And what are all the funny things about life that changes. And one of them obviously is our laws, you know, and how we'll, just how we see kind of a lot of laws emerging around, you know, even just cyberbullying today, how there's going to be, you know, once our brain is accessible, once we can decode the thoughts from a brain, you know, what it means for privacy, what it means for, you know, kind of violating that privacy, almost like breaking and entering a house, breaking into somebody's, you know, head is illegal. And, you know, what are the, the legal ramifications of that? When not only what the legal ramifications are, but how the hell do you catch the guy? Pardon my French. It's, it's going to be just as hard as it is to catch hackers. And in some senses, you know, that that was one of the great mysteries of this book is, uh, you know, people are getting manipulated through their prosthetics. And, and who exactly is doing that? And especially uh, manipulating young people via their prosthetics is damned easy. <laughs> Right, right. Well, the thing is, you know, at what age would you put a prosthetic in a kid? Um, uh, that, and again, I allude to it, you know, in one of the, the commercials, and when one of the characters is walking through a kind of a transmission zone where basically they they implicitly give you know people access to their brains by walking into a blue light area. But uh, you know, how old you know should you be before you have your prosthetic? Because I'm sure once people start getting these implanted, uh, which again, it's not a question of. Um, if it'll happen. It's really a question of when, quite frankly. Um, and, and again, I, hopefully I don't sound too kookish in that regard because, again, as a neurosurgeon who's also a biomedical engineer and we're creating this technology, we know it's coming online. We already have clinical trials for this stuff. Um, so imagine, you know, like, you know, when this is uh, uh, kind of in, in real time and then and, and people have these and there's a social competition, meaning that your kid is uh, smarter and more effective in school because they have it. How young do you go? Well, and the upgrades have got to be murder. I mean, if I want to upgrade my, my PC, smart. I go to the store. If I upgrade my, my prosthetic, I have to get surgery. So, you know, I already feel remorse when I come home with a new computer and it's and it's outdated. <laughs> Not more By the surgery, time you get it home, more, you know. It's... No more risky than getting your ear pierced. Would you get your ear pierced maybe once or twice a year? Well, yeah, but not every week. Not every week. And it better not be every week. Absolutely. A similar theme is explored in John Scalzi's uh, series of books, The Old Man's War, where they have the brain pal. Mm, the, you know, it's a very similar sort of thing. It's a neuroprosthetic. Well, not uh, every, but help, not every person the, has it. The, uh, the, the cyborgs have it. Right, know, right. Is, it's, it's not as commonplace as it is in Red have. Devil 4. Available for tour books. Just, just say. There's a movie out now uh, that's uh, coming out premieres in the coming weeks called Transcendence. Which, uh, have you heard about this film? Is it? Do you have an opinion I, about? I just it? watched the trailer today. Actually, it looks great. It does, doesn't it? Um, this idea. That timing. It looked really. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, again, the whole idea of uh, um, that. You know, people are downloadable, that, you know, that the, the information in your brain is accessible, that it's really it's it's very interesting to watch. Because, again, I've been doing this research for, you know, about 10 years now. When we first started doing it, we were having playing people playing Pong with their thoughts. 
for the first time. And it was really science fiction at that time and really kind of, you know, oh, my goodness. But really it's hitting mainstream consciousness now where basically the, not only are we talking about, hey, you can control devices with your thoughts, but we're really starting to see humans in a different context because once you can reduce the information from your brain into, you know, truly kind of, you know, stuff that is accessible, right, that in some senses your brain becomes kind of like uh, a DVD of the 90s, meaning that it's just the carrier. And so if you can imagine that, uh, we'll download that data, we can understand it, we can digitize it, that suddenly y your brain and your body become less relevant to who you are. So again, I think with, as we see with the idea of, you know, neuroprosthetics, and again, once you can, you know, do this easily, again, where it can potentially give you an advantage socially, you're going to see things happen where, you know, if you can make your kids smarter, make them more competitive in school, get them into a better college, get them a scholarship, I think that they'll be placed you know, at a younger and younger age. I think the other thing, uh, which is kind of really interesting about this, and it really rifts on the idea of transcendence, is that what's really neat right now, and having done this for the past 10 years where you know we started off where people were learning to play Pong with their brain signals, is that uh, um, that where it went from being, oh my gosh, this is so unusual, so niche, so strange, and that now you it's really hitting mainstream consciousness, whether it be transcendence, I think there's a number of TV shows out there right now that are kind of you know having people with implants, but I think it's changing our actually it's already starting to change our sense of self, right? Where in some senses, once you can access the brain, once you can fully decode the information that represents our thoughts, our sense of self, perceptions, etc., that uh, th you really start to see both the brain and the body almost like a, a DVD in the '90s, where it's it's just the carrier for the information, and there's a lot better ways to transfer, carry, uh, uh, mobilize, manipulate that information than the DVD today, right? You know, like nobody, nobody really uses DVDs or CDs as much as they used to a decade ago. And so, mm -hmm. and I think you're seeing kind of, you know, people's awareness emerge that about once we can access the brain, once we can, you know, we call it decode, you know, cracking the neural code that, uh, kind of how we see our bodies and how we interact with machines and is going to change a lot. And, and which is going uh, to be especially valuable for the disabled. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, we see this in the book with um, Brent. Trent, yeah. Trent. Right. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's what we're doing today. I mean, you know, I've got a clinical trial right now where uh, um, patients who have had a chronic stroke and can't move their hand, they put on a headset. And about 30 minutes later, after being trained, they, they wear an exoskeleton over their uh, uh, paralyzed hand, and they can open and close their hand with the intention to move, which we could pick up from their uninjured part of their brain. My word. Wow. And so, but what's interesting about that is this, this no, and, and there's actually very good historical examples of how restorative technologies go to augmenting technologies. And again, you guys are from... Uh, LA, so maybe you'll appreciate this more than good old sleepy Midwest. But, you know, one thing that you know you've seen is if if you look at, for instance, pl how plastic surgery started and where it's at now. Um, plastic surgery started as restorative technology, meaning uh, you did uh, you know breast reconstruction for uh, uh, women who had a mastectomy after breast cancer, uh, or you did you know kind of you know nose alterations or you know a lot of the uh, things that are, you know, the facial plastic surgery for people who, who are the, you know, suffered, the, you know, from traumas. Well, that's obviously changed, right, in the last 30 years. 
and uh, uh, and I think one of the things that you're going to see similarly is you know in the world of you know, uh, neuroprosthetics, brain computer interfaces, uh, neural tech, generally speaking, it will necessarily be restorative. I think for the next decade, maybe even two decades. But then once it becomes easy, once you see the advantages of it, that people necessarily use it to be a faster trader uh, uh, when uh, on the stock market or have better access to documents as a lawyer or uh, be able to you know, have improved memory when you're studying for a test. You know, once again, once you see st- social competition emerge, the technology will proliferate very quickly. Oh, my God. Imagine trying to take an exam from the SAT to the bar exam. Yeah. <laughs> What does that even mean anymore? That's exactly right. Because, you know, if you've got universal access, you know, what element makes you the most competitive? It may be your cre- – and actually, interesting, people fear it, but it actually may be really – it may be your, your – purely your analytic skills and maybe even your creativity that defines you. So maybe we'll enhance the things that make us best. Well, it'll enhance yeah, the ones who, who know who can, who can work the keywords. <laughs> I'm pretty good with Google. I can find things – quickly where where other people seem to struggle with it so i think maybe i'll be good with this and her her father is actually a, a brilliant example of this principle uh, he's how old is your dad he's 85 and he's a, a interneting guy and his eyes are failing and his ears are failing and if he could get one of these he would just swim in the internet all day that's awesome i was reading a couple of years ago about um an experiment where the uh, visual cortex uh, had been um, had been scanned and translated to the point where they could actually image what you were dreaming about. Yeah, that's that right. That scares me for some reason. Did you get persecuted? You, or so prosecuted? you've read about this. You, you've, I'm sorry. What's that? You've read about this. This. I, oh yeah, absolutely. So there's there's several stages. First, um, they did. Uh, I think this was a group out of uh, uh, I want to say U, uh, University of California, California Berkeley. First, that I think that group, what they did is they did functional imaging, functional MRI, while you were watching various movies, and they were able to reconstruct the movies that you saw from your brain signals alone. And then I think they took those same type of applications, and they did it uh, while people were dreaming, and actually were able to capture some of the elements of you know, that information processing when you're dreaming, uh, which is totally fascinating. And uh, recently, they just uh, um, had some further demonstrations of that, where they can now do... Uh, uh, functional MRI, and they can reconstruct the faces that you have seen or were imagining. Wow! Now there's there's another uh, murder mystery in the making. Right, right, right. Well, it gets at this, you know, if you you know if you're a murderer or if you committed some crime or you're suspected of doing some crime, can they reconstruct it from your brain? Well, I think Alfred Bester probably explored that in the fifties with uh, uh, the Demolished Man, didn't they? How do you commit a murder in a society where where the cops are are telepathic right all right so you know um it get certainly it will get harder but i think the interesting thing is that you know criminals always uh, um advance just as much as the you know the people who are pushing the technology meaning that again if you remember in the book the chameleon he was a master of uh, you know using the technology for uh you know bad purposes right mm-hmm. uh, and it all, you know, for instance, you know, one of the things is if you've got these implants and you can do all these interesting things with them, there's nothing to say that you couldn't do things that are perhaps quite pleasurable yet harmful. Like, for instance, could you imagine um, 
uh, you know, tomorrow's drugs not being chemicals, but basically being you know, different forms of you know software and code that stimulate your brain just right in a very addictive way. Oh yes, the fuzz, uh, the, the, fuzzers. the fuzzers, the fuzzers. That's right. You know, or you even have implants that are directly put into kind of your pleasure centers, so that you get the most extreme, uh, uh, you know, orgasmic heroin style uh, um, pleasure that you can possibly experience. And those people, and again, the, the the fuzzers, you know, they, you know, I built that, I built that whole kind of group of uh, addicts on uh, some actual experiments that were done on mice. They put um, mm-hmm. electrodes in the pleasure centers of mice, uh, and basically, the little mice, they, what they could do is they could um, tap a button, and they would it would stimulate that area. It's called the nucleus accumbens. It's kind of the area that you know is basically that responsible for registering extreme pleasure. And uh, those mice would press that button essentially 700, 800 times a minute and uh, have little rodent orgasms, you know, on and on and on and on until they basically starve to death. And so... Uh, there's people you know, we would just lose. There's just... I don't think there's anything we could do about that. Is there? Uh, preventing that? Yeah. Someone got addicted to to the fuzzer. What do you do with them? Apart from removing that part of his brain, there's just... Not a blessed well, thing that, can that could compare. Take with. the device out. If so you, you can take the device out, you could. Uh, uh, the, the real issue is that you know, in some senses, I think that you know, people suffering from drug addiction today, you know, they they're in a similar boat. Like it's very you know, once you do things like whether it be taking heroin, taking crack, you know, methamphetamines, um, you know, that these things permanently change your brain chemistry. Um, I mean, the only difference with kind of being a fuzzer and having an implant put in, at least you control the button, right? You can, um, and so that, uh, uh, again, I'm not advocating for it, but, I, but you know, I think the people will suffer the same problems they do today as they will when they have a, a kind of, you know, fuzzer tech in the, in the future. I guess so, but what kind of methadone do you use? <laughs> if right. that's even a, a right, right, right. No, that's right. Like, how do, how do you reverse it? So, what kind of uh, what kind of research into uh, um, oh, I'm having aphasia? The, 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 neuroprosthetics. Thank you. Okay. What kind of neuroprosthetics? What have you been uh, working on as of late? What? Uh, yeah. So, what what might the public not have heard about yet? Yeah. So, kind of maybe just a brief summary of what my laboratory does is um, again, I'm a neurosurgeon. I I regularly implant electrodes over the surface of the brain for different reasons, actually. For epilepsy, um, so my patients, uh, a number of my patients, require we place electrodes over the over their brain to figure out where their seizures are coming from. And we we, we they're only temporary, so they have these electrode arrays in for about one to two weeks. And when we find out where those seizures areas are coming from, we take that area out to treat their epilepsy. Now that actually provides an incredibly unique scenario where we can record from the surface of the brain directly and do a lot of interesting uh, uh, scientific experiments while these patients simply have to have these arrays implanted to have seizures. And so we study all sorts of uh, kind of the, the ethos of my lab is understand how the brain encodes information and figure out how ways to use it. And so, for instance, we really you know are into decoding a lot of different types of cognitive intention. Uh, that includes motor movement, so we know we can decode, for instance, how you're moving your fingers, how you're moving your arms, what direction you want, you're moving your limbs. That's one. And again, you can, it's not hard to imagine, for instance, if you've got a spinal cord injury, 
and we can decode your brain directly. We can have a robot do what your body can't. Um, another version is, and this is, was really neat, and you know, over the last couple of years, we've been working on um, uh, decoding speech. So, for instance, we're now at the level of uh, where we can decode what are called phonemes. Those are the different parts of uh, uh, a word, meaning you know, like a, ah, e, a, and u, kind of the vowels or the mm-hmm. uh, consonants. Uh, these different fo- uh, components of words, and we showed uh, a couple years ago that uh, um, we're able to decode those different types of phonemes, both real when you actually say them, and actually even more fun when you imagine saying them. I can actually still decode them out of your brain, and we actually showed that people could use this. They can quite literally talk to their computer to get it closer to move in different directions. Um, uh, and then now I think you know we're moving up what we call the semantic tree meaning that we're working on not only just decoding the words you know, or the parts of the words, but actually the, 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 the global concept so that it doesn't matter what word you say. Uh, for instance, if I say the, uh, but we want to see if we can decode the concept. Like as an example, I'll say some words and you tell me which concept I'm thinking about. Um, uh, bed, snore, pillow. Sleep. Sleep, right, exactly. And so we're basically seeing if we can find uh, uh, kind of those super concepts, sleep, king, pe- you know, writing. All, and so we're seeing if we can actually pick that up by looking at the electric, electrical signals in the brain. So we got preliminary evidence that we're getting there. Um, and that's really, you know, in, in some senses, you can almost, if you're familiar with Plato, it's mm-hmm. almost, you know, like the, uh, these, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the higher ideas of, you know, the brain, which is really neat. So and depending looking- on the output, you, you've just invented the universal translator. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because if instead of sleep, I say dormir, then right. suddenly we've translated it into French. That's exactly right. And actually, we have some collaborations uh, uh, with folks in uh, China, and uh, we're actually going to do the same experiment in Chinese. Mm. And how similar and different it is between Chinese and English. Is there a strong correlation from one individual to the next as to uh, what um, what collected data? Uh, that's a well. That could be very different. <laughs> That's yeah. a good, good question. Um, if I say bed, someone would say sleep. Someone else would say sex. No, I'm, I'm going. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. I'm, I mean, going to a, a baser level than that. No, uh, I know what you're like exactly. Thinking, thinking. Like, how universal is the neural code? So, if I decode one brain, can I decode the next brain? With precisely. It? And so, how much similarity? The honest, is there? The honest answer is, um, I don't know yet. We'll um, find out, I guess. Uh, we're, that's that is the holy grail, and we're we're getting there. Um, uh, but I think we're kind of essentially currently, we're really decoding one brain at a time mm-hmm. and uh, getting at this notion of more universal representations from brain to brain. Um, we're not there yet. Part of it is that each brain is really different. It's pretty, uh, you, people don't fully realize that. And, you know, my, one of the, the jobs that I do in addition to taking care of epilepsy patients, I take care of brain tumor patients. And uh, uh, specifically brain tumors that are close to uh, important functional areas like speech regions and motor regions. And the interesting thing is from person to person that uh, your speech area, for instance, is very extremely variable, I meaning it can be located in a different spot for a different person. And I have to go in and figure out where those speech areas are before I take out the brain, brain tumor so I don't injure their ability to speak. And uh, again, it's, it, it's quite distinct. And that means that Everybody, kind of like if you actually, if you look at your hands, for instance, we all have hands for the most part, and they have a thumb and four fingers. 
But, you know, there's a lot of variability in the size, you know, the hairiness, the skin tone that even though our hands do the same thing from person to person to person, they, they have a fair degree of variability. And so your now the fortune have... teller will tell you that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And, uh, and so the brain is similar in that while it does a lot of the same stuff, people's brains are put together in a variable way that uh, requires you to, again, do some sophisticated brain mapping to figure out uh, where, you know, for instance, where the thumb is, you know, and it's going to be in a different so place. It, it and understanding that variability is one of the next great challenges of uh, neuroscience. It, it, uh, I could draw an analogy here uh, with speech recognition in general. That's exactly right. Uh, Google. Yeah, great uh, analogy. Yeah, because uh, um, uh, the speech recognition software, I've been watching this over the years because I've been fascinated with the idea of operating a computer by voice alone. And uh, until recently, uh, it has required a tremendous amount of personal training with yep. uh, with the speech recognition software because it had to be tuned to the way you speak and really didn't understand how anyone else spoke. Uh, but now you have things like the speech recognition software in Android uh, where it doesn't require any training at all. And it gets it right about uh, 80% of the time. And it I was about to say, rest. with a few whimsical uh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> reassignments of, of words. Right. Yeah, but it, it, a lot of that depends on context. Right. It, it, guesses, yeah. it guesses the mis- the missing words based on context and based on uh, uh, probability of the sequence of words you used. To That's exactly right. Things. And do you know how they got there? Actually, I, was at, I actually uh, was at Google, their headquarters, uh, maybe a year ago. Where they they gave me a really wonderful talk about uh, um, speech recognition, and I think one of the things, and this is going to be true for neuroprosthetics and brain computer interfaces, the reason that they're so good at speech recognition is because of the massive amount of data, and they can tr- generate these beautiful probabilities that if you say, "I am going to the uh, blank blankety blank to pick up shoes," it says, "I'm going to," uh, it's going to assume you're saying, "I'm going to the store to pick up shoes," right? And, uh, um, and so they, and basically it's all about getting big time data, like with the massive amounts of data, they can create beautiful probability measurements to figure out what goes with what. And similarly, that's what we need in neuroscience. We can get massive amounts of data, which again is coming, um, that we can start to do these, you know, large scale analysis to really start to fill in the blanks for kind of when we don't understand something. Well, it's really two problems, isn't it? It's first, first you have the the probability of what's intended, you know, which is a contextual thing, uh, and, and the other part of it is simply overlaying many, many thousands of samples to get an average signal. Yeah, you know, uh, just just from a raw computational standpoint, without making any predictive uh, uh, assumptions about what the signals might mean. Uh, you can do that much. And that's where, that was the first thing that was done with speech recognition to make it better, to require less in the way of, uh, of training per person. Right, right. Um, but again, that's where, you know, massive data, and just once you have mm-hmm. super high-scale data, small probabilities become meaningful. Indeed. So what, what's our time check like at this point? Oh, well, let's see. Oh, we're 6.06 and we talked for 10 minutes. 
before we started, and we had an interruption, so. Okay, so we're about at half an hour. Yeah, roughly. Okay. Just checking. Yeah, it's uh, it's always good to check. So, um, this is, is this your first novel? It is, yeah, it is. Presumably you've published before, but it's not for the same audience. (laughs) That's right, yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've published numerous, numerous uh, scientific manuscripts and review papers and chapters and stuff like that, but no, this is my first work of fiction. My gosh. We're pretty sure it's fiction. You can't possibly have a boss like that. (laughs) Hope not, yeah, no, I, I certainly don't. He's a... He's the opposite of my boss. I actually have a very good and supportive boss and a very good and supportive wife. Um, and uh, uh, my main character struggled with both of them. <laughs> I've had bosses like that, unfortunately. I think most people have. So, I, you know, um, but uh, my current one is not like that. Well, we sure don't have computers like this. The, the Aaron's uh, computer, tell us about that. Yeah, so the Aaron stands for uh, Artificial Intelligence Reverse Engineered uh, from uh, neural systems, and basically, uh, and again, it gets us at this idea of a neural code. Once we figure out fully how the brain works, then we can artificially create uh, a true artificial intelligence based on the operation of our brain. And so, because again, you know, this idea of brain-computer interfaces, neuroprosthetics, and artificial intelligence—they really walk hand in hand. The more we can understand how the brain works, the more we can use the brain to control devices and enhance our experiences, but it also means we can take that information and create uh, a truly artificial intelligence that we can interact with. And I think the other thing about the errands in my story is that uh, uh, just like uh, um, kind of raising a child, you don't, I don't think you turn a switch and suddenly poof, you have this fully self-aware, fully capable artificial intelligence. Just like the way that we learn, I think a true artificial intelligence is going to have to learn from the people and the things that it interacts with to create uh, patterns to allow it to truly become aware. I've only, I confess I haven't read up to the point where this starts to become a thing in the story. Uh, I've only read about the first one-fourth of the book. uh, I could not put it down this week. Anyway, but you you um, extrapolate. Uh, you know, we we've all read the uh, the Asimov robot stories, and there were three laws of robotics, and and you've extrapolated five laws that um, may, if I may read into the record. Absolutely. Omid says these laws, known as Richard's laws of artificial intelligence, include the following: one, only public information can be accessed unless. A- accessed with approved human user. Thus, I cannot independently violate privacy of any kind without, a, without human permissions. Two, existing information cannot be destroyed or distorted. Thus, I cannot independently reduce or distort information created by humans. Three, information that is created cannot be self-propagating. Thus, I cannot create information such as a computer virus, that they may replicate beyond the control of a human user. 4. An artificial intellect cannot reproduce a copy of its own source code. Since an errand has an unlimited lifespan, the population will always continue to grow. This growth will always be dictated by human discretion, and thus I cannot recreate myself. 5. An artificial intellect cannot change the source code created by a human user. Thus, I cannot modify myself 
that I can transgress the above laws. This frustrates the detective and uh, motivates the last uh, a third of the book, I think. <laughs> yeah, he violates his own laws and in, uh, without giving too much away. Yeah, he, he violates a number of those laws. And that's when we know he's become human. <laughs> or aware. Yeah. But yeah, no, so I think that uh, I, you had asked me earlier, I really did put a lot of thought into those laws. Because I think the interesting thing about laws of robotics, as uh, described by Isaac Asimov, they were self-aware physical structures, right? You know, that a robot was a physical thing. And our universe and kind of our human universe and our human world is no longer purely physical, meaning that a, a conscientious thing that will sit on a table like a person. Um, but, you know, with, with once we decode the brain and our, this information is available and it may be available on a server, on a network, in a brain, um, that that the rules aren't the same as if you were a physically bodied intelligent thing gone toward the cloud exactly that's exactly right and you know how an artificially intelligent thing uh, will interact with kind of information systems that can either be part of us humans or part of the the human world that we create which is pure information uh, really requires i think some some oversight it's uh it's going to be an interesting couple hundred years <laughs> the next couple hundred years are going to radically change uh how we see ourselves and what it means to be human well i think and that's I, right i, I think th that in some senses we're really standing at the cusp of an era where we control not only our biology but our very uh you know human mindfulness and essence right you know that um with it with us being reduced to information both by our dna and by our neural code um, for instance, how will we travel in the future? Could it simply be that we, you know, beam ourselves not so much in physical body, but, but in consciousness to another, you know, location? Maybe we don't even have physical bodies anymore, but really we have robotic bodies or just sensor Avatars. systems that allow, you know, or virtual, you know, virtual, in, in, virtual environment. And that um, at that point, how important is it that an intelligence be born of organics? Telecommuting can be a very real thing for your whole life. Yeah, I know sure. people including who don't being, leave the house anyway. Including being born. Ooh. You know, at, 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 at what? Yeah. <laughs> at what point? At what point does uh, uh, does being human uh, not necessarily require having been born in meat space? Well, you know, think of it this way. Let's uh, let's imagine, for instance, you know that. You you know uploaded your your mind and your brain so that you can be immortal, right? Uh, and actually, as as a side note, there is a company trying to do this twenty uh, project twenty forty five by a you know, Russian billionaire who wants to basically create a downloadable version of you by twenty forty five. Anyway, let's say that you do that. Let's say that uh, you 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 know your brain is fully downloaded onto some type of network uh, server cloud uh, experience, and you meet somebody else uh, who you fall in love with. And uh, um, now, and you have a child, you know, what does that child look like? Are you basically just going to randomly permute kind of the, your two consciousness so that you can have this uh, new consciousness that's a random combination of the two of you um, that then subsequently learns and develops on its own? I or guess will you combine the two of you and be the child? What's that? Or will you combine the two of you and be the child? 
Exactly. Yeah, it's... So, I mean, again, it just... But I guess it's, you know, it is a, it is a really interesting thought. But, uh, uh, you know, what happens when, you know... Because if, if you're going to have an, an eternity to be in existence and you are not of a physical body anymore and you meet other people, you know, you know, what does it mean for kind of coupling and like, what if there's no till death do us part anymore? And, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Because maybe well, after how do you reconcile it now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if after 200 years, you may get sick of each other's company. Or just simply learn everything there is to learn from one another and go on. Right. That's right. You know, it's, it's not, uh, the the idea of of uh, uh, what it means to be human and what human relationships will be like uh, when the necess the necessity of having a physical form at all uh, is uh, uh, is obsolete. Right. That I that entire question just it fascinates me and it scares the hell out of me at the same time. Well, it, it, you, you it, play Second Life. People are there are as they present themselves, you know. I was thinking the same thing, that, this, that uh, the world of Red Devil 4 is very similar to uh, something that people are already doing in an online MMO called Second Life, where they, they're free to do anything they like, look like anything they want to look like, go anywhere within the virtual world they want to be. You can have wings, you can fly, you can swim under the sea we knew a young man there who had spinal atrophy his his dream was just to walk around and be one of the gang and go to a dance which he wouldn't he never got to do in in, in life i miss him <laughs> yeah he was a good friend oh joseph would have really loved this book and this concept yeah uh so Sad moment. Yes, sad moment. But uh, <clears throat> little maudlin folks. Um, so you got to, you got to the space where you're going to do this uh, uh, a work of fiction after all of this nonfiction. Uh, what made you decide to uh, to move in this direction? Absolutely. So um, just as as some background, I studied both biology and theology in uh, uh, college. And so I've always been interested in, you know, how the world works, uh, whether it be the, you know, fundamental medical science or the brain especially, but also what is the meaning behind things. And, and I think one of the things that you learn when you study, you know, theology, whether it be Eastern, uh, uh, you know, thinking you know, such as Buddhism or Hinduism or early Christian thought is that uh, some of the greatest stories are told in tales, Right. That are some of the best education that you can get are told in the form of stories that people can personally relate to. And I really wanted to create a heart-thumping, thrilling, intense novel, but at the same time, that, that really gets you thinking on your own, in your own terms about what the future looks like when your brain's accessible. So that, um, again, it really gets the world thinking about you know, neuroprosthetics, and some people are going to love it, Think it's going to be great. They can drive their you know, Tesla with their brain alone. Some people are going to think it's awful in terms of privacy, but again, it, it gets the ball rolling for a larger conscious kind of social uh, consciousness thinking about this topic. And so that's really, you know, I really wanted to create a very good story that got people thinking about all the different levels of neuroprosthetics. And uh, and again, but first and foremost, it's not a lecture; it's a story, and it's a story that you know 
hopefully grips you and hopefully, you know, gets you thinking on a lot of different levels. And uh, one of the, the, the social themes come up right away. Uh, there's the preacher, uh, I think in, I don't know, chapter, I think it's around page 60, I guess. Yeah, Alimus. Uh, yes, him. And um, he's... Uh, he's a complicated person. Oh, yeah. He's... His sect is very much against the whole concept of neuroprosthetics, and we should be as, as God meant us to be. And that's going to come up. I mean, I think I'm already seeing it. I, you know, every once in a while, I get some interesting emails. Um, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. <laughs> and those are the people who will touch a computer, won't they? That's right. But, you know, I think that you're going to see a lot of um, interesting social dynamics that happen. You know, I think you see it already with genetics. Some people think it's the best thing. Some people think, uh, you know, they're against, uh, you know, genetically modified foods. You know, that there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. And then I think there's a lot of uh, cultural elements that go into it. And I think you're going to see that with neuroprosthetics because also I think you're going to see things se segregate out potentially even socioeconomically. For instance, some Absolutely. of these implants may be expensive. And what happens when you know only a certain subgroup of people can get the best prosthetics so that they can be the you know, most competitive in society? There's going to be people who are really not going to like that. And a lot of times, I think sometimes you know uh, you you see kind of you know how uh, uh, kind of socioeconomics mixes with religions, and sometimes one calls the other bad because it's really kind of power you know kind of power relationships, socioeconomic relationships that get turned into religious issues. Well, it changes the social dynamic considerably as well, because now instead of just being privileged because you have a silver spoon, you know, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, now you are privileged because of something you can buy off the that's shelf. That's right. And uh, uh, that's, that changes, uh, changes uh, an accident of birth into into something that can be quantified and put in a box literally with a label on it that you take off the shelf and that that changes the whole dynamic of it well I mean, if trent hadn't been born to the richest man on earth he would not have gotten into all this trouble would he <laughs> yeah well you know he he certainly would he may not have even survived if it wasn't for his father really pushing him uh, pushing you know Hagen, the surgeon to take care of him to going to really re rebuild him it's uh, there's there's so much to this that I we could probably uh, make a whole series of radio shows on this one topic. Well, we hope you make a whole series of books on this. We're looking forward to the future of this world. Yeah, no, it. Uh, I actually I finished writing my first, my second one. Um, awesome, I knew it. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. It's, uh, it's it's a fun one. I really uh, I really enjoyed writing that second one. Does Krantz ever get an upgrade? <laughs> he obviously needs one. Yeah, you know he he's he's our he's our happy grouchy old guy, and uh, I don't know if he's gonna ever get an upgrade. But uh, actually, the, the, the it's the same world, different set. Um, uh, this one, whereas I think the first one rifts on kind of you know what does it mean if somebody you can hack truly hack a brain and manipulate people. Um, the second one really rifts on. What happens when corporations get involved and they can know a lot about you and they can do very, uh, you know, bad things. Malevolent things. I'm a little scared to read it now. And what is, what's like cyberbullying going to be like? Somebody pounding kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself, you know, seven times, hundred times an hour. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the uh, or, you know, again, if imagine if you could hack some, you know, uh, people volitionally. Uh, actually, I'll give you a brief thumbnail of the next one. So uh, as a teaser um, that, uh, you know, imagine now we're, you know, that uh, people have had these, you know, implants in for 30 years that, you know, you quite literally know this this prosthetic has recorded every element of your experience, you know, for decades now, again, with the advent of uh, quantum computing, that you could download those and really truly create an artificial avatar version of yourself that truly thinks of itself as you, right, um, once your physical body dies. And so a, uh, um, a company called Charon uh, uh, provides that service where you can download your dying loved one's you know, memories into a, a, a quantum computer to create a quasi-cognition uh, uh, avatar or quasi-cog, as it would mm-hmm. be called. And that, and as it turns out, though, having this amazing chorus of artificial intelligent beings allows you to crowdsource an, an extraordinarily capable uh, possibilities for predicting uh, human behavior, whether it be predicting or manipulating um, uh, 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 elections, manipulating markets, uh, predicting individual human behavior before they even do it. Um, so that you can have some powerful abilities to manipulate people for profit. Wow. That's an interesting direction to go. You could download whole personalities for such beneficial reasons. That's right. James White's uh, Hospital Station books, they, they had uh, doctors <laughs> in uploaded form for very tricky uh, operations, for instance. You'd well, have to sort of... You, you'd upload them to your brain and then have to download them afterwards because oh, especially if it was someone of a different species, most of the person's memories would be from bewildering to irrelevant. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, but again, imagine that you've got a million, million minds at your disposal to do whatever you want with them. Um, and you have the, no legal... And so, in any case, the, the, the where it really gets interesting is when there's two twins and one twin dies and... Uh, um, they share a twin language, and that's the only way that they can actually communicate without uh, the the corporation knowing. And then their malign intentions get made aware of by this uh, 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 by the living twin, and then all chaos ensues. Ooh. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Well, and the, there's there's another question that's raised by this, and that is the you know it's the 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 uh, Star Trek transporter conundrum. Uh, the way they're supposed to work is you are uh, a the information full, a full, is encoded. A full copy of okay. you is recreated at the destination site, and the original is destroyed. Well, what happens if the original is not destroyed? There's nothing that says you have to. Right, or what happens when basically you know you don't you don't care about the original anymore? Meaning that mm-hmm. what happens if you maybe for instance maybe the way we travel through space is not in the form of a rocket ship but it is basically in the form of a laser beam just being beamed to some receiver far away and then and then uh which which version is the original or which one is the which one is the legal has the legal right to be that person or do they both well, you know, it may, again, there's, it gets into copyright law, right? Whereas these days you have to, you know, put in all this, you know, very specific code to make sure that, you, you, for instance, especially for certain types of digital documents, that it can't be copied or that it can't be duplicated or that you can't manipulate it. Digital um, And you probably will have the same thing for uh, kind of a human. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and, and um, do I have the DRM on my own mind? Exactly. Ew. You know, and uh, you know, so so well, you you have your it. mind encoded, and it's put into this uh, uh, this uh, quantum supercomputer. Wait, say and that again. You have your mind encoded, and it's put into your the image is put into this quantum supercomputer. Uh, and nobody knows for sure if it's really operating the way your original mind would have, because there's no way to test it. Uh, and uh, the new mind thinks it's itself, and the old one is, you know, it's. Is he still there? Yeah. The, the is, thing is are that you the still old there, mind. Or are you uh, are you oatmeal at the end of it? Yeah. Well, the, the, my question basically is, wh- what happens to the old mind? I mean, it, there's obviously not a sense of continuation. The new mind thinks there is, but the old one doesn't. Well, the it's, old mind. Uh, I mean, the old copy does not have the sense of moving to a new body. I stayed here while while this recording happened. Yeah, and but I'm still I, here. Yeah, I was supposed to be put into this new body or this new this new elevated uh, yeah. sense of consciousness or an elevated plane of existence. And from my perspective, nothing happened. I say, I say, <laughs> let's upload a theologian and let them. Let both copies (laughs) discuss it and figure it out. Battle it out, that's right. Who gets ownership of the soul? Oh, boy, what a question. Well, I don't know. Ask some identical twins that question. And and, you know, The interesting thing is that, you know, I guess the moment that you have a a copy made of yourself and it's differentially interacting with the world, it really necessarily becomes two different people. That's what I think, too. I think so. Because the, from that point on, the experiences of each copy of the mind diverge. That's right. Okay. I'll buy that. Wow. Uh, my, my problem in coming up with new questions is that uh, uh, we, have entered questions. A, we have entered a sort of zone with no boundaries whatsoever. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's easy to come up with questions when, when you have a clear guideline or a fence post or some sort of landmark to tell you where you are. But in this case, I mean, it's uh, uh, a book like uh, Red Devil 4 from Tor Forge Press. Just plugging the book again. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this, you were listening to uh, Krypton Radio's production of The Event Horizon with our guest Eric Luthart. Uh, and we're discussing Red Devil 4 from uh, Tor Forge books uh, about uh, uh, crime in a world where everyone's minds are connected. Uh, and the uh, a, a situation, the situation upon which this book is founded, uh, uh, it really gets to the core of what it means to be human and where where does the soul reside and all of those questions that mankind has never been able to answer. And we're going to be faced, I think, with a world where we're going to have to deal with it without... We're going to have to deal with that world without the answers to these questions. Some people do think they have the answers. Is it in the Bible? Is it in the Quran? Is it... What my grandmother told me. Unless <laughs> grandmother is a neuroprosthetics specialist, <laughs> probably not. Or are we going to see whole new religions emerge based on this emerging technology? 
Oh, very Ooh, easily. Hey. Very easily. Let's start church now. Have you been a science... This book reads as though you've been a science fiction fan all your life. Is that... Is that a absolutely, absolutely. I, again, I think that uh, some of the best visions for the future are written in the form of uh, stories. And so, you know, I read all of Isaac Asimov. I read all of Frank Herbert's Dune series. Uh, certainly Kurt Vonnegut was uh, deeply influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, again, there's a very interesting relationship between science and fiction, uh, meaning that I think you can't visualize the future unless you have good new science but you can't create new science without visionary new fiction and so again it's been fun for me to uh, play in both those spaces where you know fiction influenced my desire to create brain computer interfaces today and i think all the science that i know about has really informed creating a very realistic uh, uh, viscerally cogent uh, fictional story that envisions the future it's uh, it's very clear from it's very clear from the uh, the depth and the texture of your work that uh, uh, that you've been strongly influenced by uh, uh, these. I'm having these a, others these other authors. I, yeah, I, I'm getting to the point where I'm having trouble holding my thoughts together because and there's so much. And what will going it on. be like <laughs> when you have neuroprosthetics when you? bumble over a word like that yes. will it will it recommend words to you <laughs> that's right it'll it'll be the filler it probably will actually just just like you know you can uh the uh, speech recognition technology that will kind of fill in for when it doesn't quite understand it, but it has a good guess oh you think damn you autocorrect is funny now oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> you know another question that people have brought up to me a lot is if you can listen to the inner voice, you know, with your prosthetic, again, which we've scientifically shown that you can, I've done it in my lab. Um, what happens when you think things, but you don't want to say them? And again, that's actually technology we still need to work out. But for instance, we can, I, there's a lot of thoughts that go on in my brain, but I repress the movement of my vocal cords so that I don't say them. Right. Um, so, you know, this oh, dinner parties would be different. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But um, so there are some interesting. There are going to be some interesting conundrums. And actually, Krantz has this problem in the book where a lot of times he he has trouble separating his internal voice with what he's trying to project to the other people with neuro, uh, with implants. Mm-hmm. Here's here's another uh, here's another question, and that is, so many people's lives would be so much better if they listened to that little inner voice inside them telling them. Uh, you know, warning them off the rocks or warning them that a certain relationship is toxic and this kind of thing. Is it possible to access that and isolate it so that uh, uh, so that people can actually hear what that inner voice is saying now? That's an interesting thought. I've you know I've thought a lot about. Um, I mean, there doesn't necessarily have to be so a, a downside and nothing else. No, the, the, I think so. it could be Gemini Cricket. What you're getting at is actually a really interesting notion, which I've been thinking about is, so for the large part, we have a conscious mind, right? Where we hear the thoughts that we're thinking to ourselves. Uh, we have, you know, overt volitional attentions, meaning I'm going to pick up this bottle of water. I need to sit down or this, or I'm talking to somebody, but there certainly is an extraordinary amount of processing that goes on in the brain that is quote unquote subconscious, right? That's 
where we are aware of things or that are, we are processing information that our, that our conscious mind is not aware of. And I think that that becomes very interesting is can you not only decode what you're consciously aware of, but can your prosthetic decode things that you are unconsciously aware of? And could there be a therapeutic benefit to either knowing it or changing it? Or where you really, if you really want to get freaky when we start to talk about hacking, can you uh, hack somebody else's prosthetic not to know their conscious thoughts? That's easy enough. But they're unconscious thoughts. So then you could really manipulate and mess with somebody. Oh, yes, especially if you could rewrite them. Ooh. Yeah, it's one thing to heal them. <laughs> it's quite another to destroy someone that way. Right. So, it's like, you know, vengeance. I thought of a theme where, you know, and again, this may be another story where um, uh, imagine that you've got this, uh, again, a religious leader who's able to hack people, not people's conscious thoughts, but their subconscious thoughts. So that he can really speak to their, their deep insecurities. He can really speak to the, their yearnings in, in, in a way that nobody else can. Boy, are you in trouble. I mean, if just, you know, lusting after a woman in your heart is a sin, you're, you're out of luck. You, you, there's just no, that's a no-win scenario. Or you can, you know, you can give them just the right thing to do exactly what you want them to do. <laughs> oh. Always let your conscience be your guide. Right. Jiminy Cricket is a bastard. <laughs> that's when he's in your head oh. it's been uh, it's, on that note yeah on that note uh, we have been speaking with Eric Luthart uh, uh, author of Red Devil 4 from Tor Forge Press it is out in hardback right now um, and downloadable uh, on Amazon and downloadable uh, and into download- your brain next week right yeah. <laughs> and uh your next book, does it have a title yet? Uh, limbo. Limbo. Do you have a... Well, any... okay, but when... Okay, so it's in Limbo. When you have a title, <laughs> you'll let it. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, no, the oh, title oh, is oh, in who's on first? Limbo. <laughs> and it's still in Limbo. And, uh, you know, because basically I have to... I'm, the, the first draft is written, but mm-hmm. it's going to... You know, it has to go through the editorial process and then get it signed to a publisher, hopefully, and, and all the rest. So that always takes a period of time. But it is; uh, it will definitely be happening. But we do want to hear from you when when it is imminent. Because, oh, you bet! I, because I, we'd I've love had, to have uh, you back. Great time talking. This has been, I think, the most enjoyable uh, uh, interview I've ever had. Just speculating on the future. It's been and with people who are deeply knowledgeable about science fiction is an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It's yeah. very kind to say. We're flustered. <laughs> Thank you, Eric Luthart, author of Red Devil Four from Tor Forge Press. We have been uh, we've been very lucky to have been graced with your presence this evening. Thank you for appearing on the Event Horizon, and we're we're glad to have had you with us. It's an absolute pleasure for me, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You have just heard episode fifty-six of Krypton Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon for April fifth, two thousand fourteen, with our special guest, biochemist neurosurgeon specializing in neuroprosthetics, and now novelist, Dr. Eric Luthart, author of Red Devil 4 from Tor Forge Books. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer, Susan Fox. This episode will air again on Sunday, April 6th, 2014, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. 
The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.